All right, quick question as we get started. How do you fill in this blank? You are what you... (laughs) Nice, okay. You are what you eat. That's what I heard. Anybody else? Ooh, you are what you do. Okay. Have you guys heard that before? Is that a common saying? It wasn't very common to me until I saw this um, on the internet this week. You are what you do, not what you say you'll do. That's written by a guy named Carl Jung. He uh, lived in late 19th century, early 20th century. He's kind of like a psychoanalyst, psychotherapist. Um, You might see his name appear often in educational books or uh, developmental psychology, things like that. But you are what you do, not what you say you'll do. The idea behind it is simply that the actions of our lives tell more of a story than the intentions of our lives. Do you follow that? The things that we do, not just the things that we think about or plan or purpose to do or even tell others that we're going to do, that's really what demonstrates who we are. Actions speak louder than words. Maybe you've heard that one before, right? Actions speak louder than words. In other words, you know, all these things, they they express this idea that our intentions or I guess our actions communicate a message. The things that we do in our lives, they communicate a message about our intentions and also about our identity. It communicates what or who is important to us. It communicates our values. And so we've been looking at the life of Daniel over the last four or five weeks. And today, as we look to his life one more time, uh, before we transition into more of a a Christmas focus and things, we're going to take a look at Daniel's life again. And we're going to find that Daniel understood this. Daniel understood the impact of his actions and what that communicated, the message that his actions communicated every single day. And so go with me to the book of Daniel. You've got your Bible, you've got your mobile device. Find Daniel, it's the Old Testament book, a little bit more than halfway through, right after the book Ezekiel. We're going to Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1. is fun. I hear fingers tapping and pages turning. That's kind of fun. All right. Daniel chapter one. Daniel chapter one. So Daniel understood this idea that the things that we do communicate a message, but you know what? There was a Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, that understood this very idea, that the things that he did were communicating a message. So if you're there in Daniel chapter one, say amen. Amen. All right. Daniel chapter one, I'm beginning in verse one, and I'm reading today from the New King James. It says this, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and did what to it? Besieged it. All right, so the book of Daniel starts out with some drama. All right, this is God's people, God's king, God's capital, and yet it's being besieged by a Babylonian king. And it says in verse 2, The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Whoa, 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 whoa. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God, and he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. You realize that Nebuchadnezzar understood, fully understood the message that was communicated through his actions. Nebuchadnezzar's actions, just in verse 2, I'm taking God's city, I'm taking God's stuff, and I'm putting it in my God's house. All right? 
Do you know the message that he's trying to communicate here through his actions? My God is bigger than your God. Right? I don't know if you've ever had those playground arguments. My daddy can do this. <laughs> Jaden has those arguments all the time. <laughs> my daddy can do this, or my God can do this. And this is exactly what Nebuchadnezzar is saying. He's giving voice. His actions are giving voice to his attitude that his gods have conquered and overpowered Israel's God. And I, I think it's really interesting that there in verse 2, even though Nebuchadnezzar is doing these things, the way that Daniel chooses his words to narrate these things is really important. Do you, do you see how it says in verse 2, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hands? Um, even though Nebuchadnezzar is the one that's carrying this out, it's really God who is actually behind all of this. The Lord delivered it. Daniel believes this to still be God's doing. But Nebuchadnezzar is oblivious to this, and that's kind of uh, what he's having to be taught over these first four chapters here in the book of Daniel. But Nebuchadnezzar, it goes on, um, he, he continues to, to do damage, so to speak, through his actions. Let's keep reading the story. Verse 3. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. Okay, so Nebuchadnezzar, he's not your uh, just violent tyrant, okay? He's got this strategy to bring the best of the best of those he's taking captive and bring them into his own service. In verse 5, it continues, And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank. So he's trying to wine them and dine them, trying to kind of woo them into allegiance to his kingdom. And it continues in verse 5, And three years of training for them, so that at the end of that time they might serve before who? Serve before the king that they might be his servants, enlisted in his court, okay? Now, notice in verse 6, we're getting to some of the specifics of the the people that were brought here who were young, good-looking, without blemish, you know, had had royal blood, so to speak. In verse 6, it says this, Now, from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them, the chief of the eunuchs gave names, he gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, right? To Hananiah, what? Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. In verse 7, that key phrase, he gave them new names. Again, Nebuchadnezzar is trying to communicate a message here. What message? What message is Nebuchadnezzar trying to communicate by kind of re-stamping them, relabeling these captives from Judah? You know, it's interesting is that all of these names, you know, um, Hebrew names were very significant. Parents really took this seriously when they were naming their children. They wanted it to communicate something about the experience uh, that, that, that they wanted for this child. And so Daniel, it's really a combination of words, judge and then God. God is my judge. Uh, every time Daniel's name was to be heard, it was supposed to be a reflection like, you know what? God is my deliverer. God is my judge. God is my savior. Hananiah, it's a recognition. that. So this, this suffix right here, the E-L, that's a reference to Elohim, the, the Hebrew word for God. Okay, And then the A-H, that's a Yah. 
That's, that's a Hebrew reference to Yahweh. Okay, so that's why you see Hananiah, Yahweh is gracious. Mishael, who is like God. It's kind of similar to the name Michael. It's asking this question. And then Azariah, Yahweh has helped. These boys, they are constantly walking with a sense of identity that they belong to a God who is gracious, a God who is their savior, a God who is like no one else. Okay? And as they come into this captive court, they're given new names. The Babylonian king is trying to say, no, 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 no. Let's, let's take away those reminders of your God and give you monikers of a different God. Belteshazzar, it's a, Bel is my protector. Shadrach, the command of Aku. Okay, it's, I'm, I'm in, in the service of someone else. Meshach, who is as Aku is. Abednego, the servant of Nebuchadnezzar. These are Babylonian gods and the whole pantheon of, you know, uh, the, the myriad of gods that the Babylonians have. Nebuchadnezzar knows exactly what he's doing. His actions to relabel them are basically communicating this message, hey, that God doesn't really matter, okay? What you've seen of God in the past has no significance for your present or your future. Replace the reminders of your God with reminders of our gods. Replace the acknowledgement about your God with an acknowledgement of our gods. Forget your past. Assimilate to your culture. Conform or get lost. All right, this is a message. This is a message that these boys, they, they were probably teenagers. Uh, these boys were, were having to, to face head on. And I don't know if, if, if this is a season, if these are things that you resonate with personally, but I tell you what, if we are not intentional, the trend of living in the 21st century is that we will conform to the pattern of this world. Do you follow that? I mean, there is a stream, and it is flowing. It's flowing down. And unless we're swimming, we're going down too. The the pattern of this world, I think it's in Romans 12, verse 2. I don't know if I put it up here. Yeah, Romans 12, verse 2. Paul, he's saying this in the New Testament. He knows exactly what's going on. He says, do not conform to the pattern of this world. Why? Because the pattern of this world is trying to conform you. The pattern of this world is trying to conform me, but instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind, by the renewing of your mind. Daniel was not content to conform to the pattern that was being set. All right, you're going to be labeled by this God. You're going to be doing these things. You're going to be, you know, all these kinds of things. Daniel was not content to conform. So how did he respond? How did he remain faithful in a fallen land? Jonathan, what comes to mind? Ah, okay, okay. So all of these things that are being kind of pushed upon him, all of these things that are being pressed upon his agenda, he's actually responding to it actively. He's going to do something about it. So let's read it. Let's read it. In, in Daniel chapter 1, verse 8, the Bible says this, But Daniel, I love it, But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore... He requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. This is huge. We're going to sink our teeth into this just for the next few moments. Because there's two things that Daniel does to respond. One, there's a purpose. Two, there's a practice. Like he doesn't just think about what he's going to do. He does something about it. And it's all right there in verse 8. So let's, let's take a look again. But Daniel purposed in his heart. But Daniel purposed where? 
in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies. I want us to see something. That Daniel's outward excellence that we've seen throughout the rest of the book of Daniel, Daniel's, Daniel's outward faithfulness, Daniel's outward faithfulness started with an inward purpose. Daniel's outward faithfulness started with an inward purpose. But let's be real. Let's be real. Have we ever experienced this, that the things that we purpose in our hearts get challenged by others outside of us? Have you ever experienced that? When Daniel, um, you know, the, he, he found that there was a, a resistance to his purpose, like when he wanted to act upon it, yeah? When he shared it with the eunuch, and we'll read about it here in just a moment, but sometimes there are consequences that discourage us. There are others around us who dissuade us from our purpose. Maybe you've sensed a conviction upon your heart, a conviction of something that God is calling you to, a step that God wants you to take, or a step that God doesn't want you to take. Maybe you've sensed this and you've wanted to purpose it in your heart, but you've backed off because of the possible consequences, because of the collateral damage that might appear, because of the things that might be said, the things that you might miss out on. And I wonder how did Daniel handle himself when his purpose was challenged? So let's keep reading. Let's keep reading and see how Daniel worked this out. So at the end of verse 8, therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might defile himself excuse me, that he might not defile himself. And then in verse 9, now God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. Okay, so just so that we know, this whole thing is all couched in God's providence. Okay, yeah, Daniel is doing something about it. Nebuchadnezzar is also doing something about stuff, but God is really working behind the scenes. Now God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. The chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who has appointed your food and drink. For why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? Then you would endanger my head before the king. So when Daniel's purpose was challenged, when his intention was resisted, do you know what Daniel did first? He listened first. He let the eunuch, he let this, this official kind of share his sentiment and the reason why he was resistant. He discovered the eunuch's resistance wasn't against his heart's purpose, but he discovered that it was against the possible outcomes. And so now Daniel understood, okay, so maybe he's not resisting my purpose outright. He's resisting the possible consequences, okay? And so after Daniel listens, he gets creative, all right? So he listens first, then he gets creative with a solution that removed the threats. He gets creative with the solution that removed the fears. And sometimes we, you know, when we have these intentions of our heart, I don't know how you react when other people, like, resist it or try to squash it. Maybe you react violently and you're like, well, forget you, you know? <laughs> maybe you just kind of burn that bridge or whatever. Or maybe you retreat. Maybe you withdraw. And you say, okay, that purpose in my heart, that was just a, you know, a whim. It was just a dream. It's impossible. But Daniel was willing to listen in order to find a solution. And Daniel found a solution where everybody won. I love that about Daniel. He was very diplomatic and gracious. Wise. Wise. Even as a teenager. Man, I keep forgetting that here in chapter 1, Daniel is probably just like 17 or 18 years old. And, and you're like, why do you say that? Well, because by the time he's in Daniel chapter 6, it's at the end of 70 years of captivity. And so for him to be 25, 30 at this time, man, he'd be an old guy by the time of Daniel chapter 6. <laughs> anyway, so I'm just saying that Daniel is probably a teenager at this time. 
He sought to make, a perp- make his purpose a win for everybody involved, not to burn bridges. And in the process, he created a solution where God had the room to be glorified. Where God had the room to prove himself bigger than the gods of the Babylonian pantheon. And you know what's interesting is that somewhere along the line, somewhere along the line, um, Daniel's heart purpose actually became known to his friends. It doesn't say so. It doesn't talk about, you know, because in, in verse 8, who is it that purposes in his heart? You see it there? It's Daniel, right? Daniel alone. Daniel singular. It says Daniel purposed in his heart. But then by the time you get to verse 12, it says, please test your servants, plural. So somewhere along the line, it goes from one person's purpose to multiple people's purpose. I don't know what conversations. Daniel, uh, verses 8 through 12, it doesn't indicate like, what kind of conversations Daniel had with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And I bet he didn't call them those names either. <laughs> I bet he stuck with Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. But along the line, the, his heart purpose actually becomes his friend's purpose. In other words, he talked with them about it. And I think that's something that when we find our heart purpose being challenged, when we sense, okay, this is God's will for me, but other people are saying this, go ahead and find people that can think with you and pray with you. Share that heart purpose with someone else. And what's going to happen is it's going to reinforce There are going to be people that you share your heart purpose with that don't bash it, that don't knock it, but will actually reinforce it. For for Daniel, he shared his journey with others. And I think we can do the same. When we have a heart purpose, sense of conviction, you know, New Year's is coming around, and maybe you're already thinking about, okay, so this year I'm going to whatever. Go ahead and share it with someone. Yeah, it's going to make your failure from that even more public. But what if it actually strengthens your ability to have victory? What if? So share your journey. Share your conviction with somebody else. All right, so Daniel responded first with a response of purpose. His inward purpose actually expressed itself in outward faithfulness. And the second response is simply this. It's a response of practice. Daniel didn't just purpose it in his heart. He did something about it. Let's go back to verse 8. In verse 8, it starts out with that purpose. But Daniel purposed in his heart. The word simply means he set it there. He fixed it there. He established it there unmovably. He purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, what was the practice? He requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. So his purpose turned into a practice. He actually like, took a step, talked with the, king of, or the officials of the king to, to work out this, this new plan. And in, in reality, his response, his practice was focused on simple things, little things, because a faithful life is actually faithful in little. A faithful life is faithful in little. And we'll expand upon that in just a moment. But I want us to just uh, ask a simple question here. What exactly was Daniel requesting? What exactly was Daniel requesting? Do you see it there? In verse 8, at the end of verse 8, therefore, he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that what? What does your Bible say? That he might... Yeah, that's what my... Okay, that he might not defile himself, all right? Now, I'll be honest with you. When I first read this, I, I just... When I... I guess my, my initial impression is like I'm thinking Old Testament, I'm thinking unclean versus clean, you know? Ritualistically or ceremonially clean or unclean. Being able to go into God's presence or not, you know? Things that disqualify me from worship or not. And that's kind of a general sense. I think that is true. 
But as I studied this further, the word defile is actually a less common word than the word that's used for things like polluted or unclean, uh, things like that in the, in the sanctuary services. This word is actually used only 11 times in the Hebrew scriptures. And in those 11 times, it's referring to priests and prophets who have disqualified themselves from serving in the temple. In other words, it's, uh, it's, about, it's about spiritual leaders who are engaging in the kinds of actions that unfit them for leading spiritually. You find it in the book of Ezra. You find it in the book of Nehemiah. You find it in Lamentations. You find it in Isaiah. But it's always in reference to these spiritual leaders who are not leading spiritually. And so, going back to this idea, what do my actions communicate? Daniel understood that his actions were going to communicate something. And Daniel, as he's thinking about this, is not just thinking, okay, wait, if I do this, this is against everything that I've done in the past. He's not just thinking about how it's contrary to his customs and traditions. He's actually thinking about how it disqualifies him from being a servant of God. And he's in Babylon, in the king's court, enlisted to be the king's servant. And Daniel is saying, no, 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 no. I want my message, I want my life to communicate something that I am first and foremost a servant of the living God. That even though I'm in, a, in captivity, far from the temple in Jerusalem that has been raided and things like that, even though I'm far from that physical place, spiritually speaking, I am a spiritual priest. I am a spiritual leader wanting to set an example for even captives in Babylon. This is huge. I don't know, this is a big, uh, Daniel is, again, he's only a teenager, and yet his priority is more than just the physical commitment to keeping his body pure. Yeah, I'm sure he's thinking about that. But no, it's his spiritual commitment to reserve his first and highest identity as the servant of the living God. Though he's enrolled in the Babylonian university, on track to receive, uh, you know, uh, just kind of acceptance into the king's court and things like that, Daniel knew his first allegiance was to his God. Man, this is huge. Daniel understood something, especially, you know, given the, the, the foods and the drinks there and the practice of offering these foods and drinks to, uh, as sacrifices, you know, to, to these Babylonian gods. If these foods had been offered as food sacrifices, partaking of them would have been a silent acknowledgement of, of those gods' influence in his life. And he's saying, no, 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 no. <laughs> That's not who I am. He realizes that his actions are communicating his identity. And he's going to control the message that his actions communicate. And sometimes we think to ourselves, you know, but wait, 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 I can eat. I can eat things and, and God still knows that I love him, right? I can do certain things with my life and God still knows where my heart is. I can eat whatever, drink whatever, wear whatever, say whatever, watch whatever. And God still knows that, that he's first in my life right? Have you ever rationalized in that sort of way? Man, um, I used to do that a lot. (laughs) And I think uh, subconsciously I do that still. But let me just share a little bit of perspective. Uh, I think it's 1 Corinthians 10.31. I don't think I have it here. No. 1 Corinthians 10. Let's go, let's find that really quick. Uh, So hold your finger here in Daniel. Go to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is in the New Testament. It's after the Gospels in Acts and Romans. 1 Corinthians chapter 10.
1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 31. Some of you may actually know this by memory, or it has some, some familiar ring to it. But here's Paul. He's talking to this church that really needs to get their lives in order. And in verse 31, he says this. If you're there, say, I'm there. Yeah? Okay. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. It says, therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of who? Do all to the glory of God. It's interesting. Yeah? He's basically saying everything that life encompasses. He mentions eating. He mentions drinking because those are very common things. Those are things we engage in every single day. But then he says, no, whatever you do. Do it all to the glory of God. Meaning this, that all we do communicates glory to somebody. Do you hear it? All that we do communicates glory to somebody. Uh, Recently, or not recently, but uh, a while back, someone shared this perspective that our lives are a walking billboard. Who are you advertising? Right? Our lives are a walking billboard. Who are we advertising? Or maybe another way to put it is this. If you and I were being put on trial for being a Christian, if you and I were being tried for loving Jesus, would there be enough evidence in my life to prove that is true? Do you follow that today? If, if I were being on trial for, for or if I were on trial for being a Christian, for following Jesus and putting him first, is there enough evidence in my life that that is the case? Would they be able to go to my refrigerator and find that I, I put Jesus first? Would they be able to go to my, my online checking and find that I put Jesus first in my finances? Would they be able to, to look at the things that I watch, the things that are on my computer, the things that are on my phone, the things that I do that seem to be of little significance or of little notice to others, would they be able to look and see that my first allegiance is to God and God alone? Our lives are a walking billboard. Whose glory are we advertising? And as we, as we consider this, I know this is kind of a sobering question, but the point is simply this, that the lifestyle things that sometimes we think are, are relatively insignificant or that don't make a big difference, they are all expressions they're all communicating. We, we aren't what we eat. <laughs> you are what you eat. Maybe some people, yeah, yeah, I guess in, in some degree that's true. But really, you are what you do. You are what you do. These are all expressions of our loyalty, who our God really is. What we eat or drink, what we don't eat, what we don't drink. How we talk, the media, the video games, the truth we tell or don't tell. Our consistency even with simple things is devotions. The way we keep Sabbath or don't keep Sabbath the shifts that we take or we don't take. All these lifestyle things, sometimes, all the time, they point to who our God is. And I think sometimes we, we ever get, we, we, I guess we sometimes get caught up in that mode of rationalizing, ah, oh, this really doesn't matter. I still love Jesus, you know. I'll just do this once. I'm not making a habit of it. When it really matters, I'll stand up for it. You know, right now, things are, it, it's okay. It's not like it's a time of persecution or whatever. But I don't know, whenever those thoughts kind of come to my mind, I really have to ask myself, are you serious? How do I know that I'm not, excuse me, how do I know that I'm going to stand for God when it quote-unquote matters if I'm not standing for God when the pressure is off, you know? 
How do I know? Is, it, is, is faithfulness a switch that can be flipped? I don't think so. You know, faithfulness is something that grows day by day because a faithful life is faithful in the little things. I want to share something with us that, that Satan in his, his uh, battle against each and every one of us and really his battle against God is manifest in his battle against each and every one of us. His scheme is to work for yours and mine unfaithfulness. Do you believe that? I mean, God wants us to live a faithful life in a fallen land, but we have an enemy that is actively seeking to make us live unfaithfully. And I tell you, his scheme is to do it gradually. Um, I was reading this in the book Prophets and Kings, and very interesting, just kind of the, the way that King Nebuchadnezzar was going about this is, is reflective of the way the enemy of all souls goes about this. It says, The king did not compel the Hebrew youth to renounce their faith in favor of idolatry. You, you follow that, right? Nebuchadnezzar, he didn't just bring them into his court and say, Okay, guys, enough's enough. Boom, it's over, right? You're not following this God. You're actually obeying our gods. He didn't do that. He didn't compel them to renounce their faith in favor of idolatry. He tried to do that in chapter 3, okay? But at first, at first, he hoped to bring this about how? Gradually. Man, and that is how, exactly how the enemy works. He doesn't try to just like blatantly throw us off. No, he tries to create a slow fade, a slow disconnect. He tries to bring about bring this about gradually. The next paragraph says, by giving them names significant of idolatry, by bringing them daily into close association with idolatrous customs, and under the influence of the seductive rites of heathen worship, he hoped to induce them to renounce the religion of their nation and to unite with the worship of the Babylonians. Why does Satan work gradually? If Satan's scheme is to induce us to disloyalty gradually through the quote-unquote little things, it's because he knows that the way we build true loyalty to God is through the little things. Satan's smart. <laughs> he knows that we build faithfulness by the little things. And so if we can build unfaithfulness through the little things, that's how he'll do it. A faithful life is faithful in the little. And so as we walk away today, what, what is our... What is our application of this? How, how is God speaking to your heart, to my heart? I want to give you an opportunity just for some personal reflection and a moment of honesty and simply ask God, what am I going to purpose in my heart today? Is there a purpose in my heart that's been growing, that a conviction that hasn't turned into resolve, that I haven't set there, established there, fixed there? Is there something that I've been compromising my loyalty to God in? Is there something on the billboard of my life that is advertising something I don't want to advertise? Communicating a message I don't want to communicate. The billboard of my life, my lifestyle choices, even the apparently little things needs to advertise God's glory and glory alone. I want us to think about Jesus and what was on the billboard of his life. You know, when Jesus came, from the throne of heaven, the king of the, of the universe, the creator of all things, and he became a baby, his actions were demonstrating something, right? Romans 5.8 says this, but God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So it wasn't just through his birth, his condescension, his incarnation. It was through his passion. 
right? Through his crucifixion, through his resurrection, he was demonstrating a message that God loves you and me with a love that is everlasting. That God is willing to do anything and everything for your salvation and mine. That he actually loves you and me more than his own existence. That was what was on the billboard of his life as he came as a baby, laid in a manger, as he went to the cross and hung there between heaven and earth. Jesus is saying, this is my billboard. I love you more than you ever know. And I'll demonstrate it no matter the cost. His billboard is set, is ours. What do we want our billboard to demonstrate to Jesus? Not just to the people around us, but to Jesus. What do we want our billboard to say to the watching universe? The angels who wonder, God, are you sure you want to bring them here? Right? <laughs> what is the message that we're communicating to heavenly angels who say, okay, God, there's room here. There's lots of mansions, but I'm not sure I want these people here. <laughs> or are they able to say, oh, man, Daniel is faithful. Please, God. When can we take him home, you know? When can we take her home? Man, I want, I want my billboard to be loud and clear that Jesus is my king. And when he comes, he's coming for me. Mm. Today, I want us to pray together. But before we do, I want to give us uh, an opportunity to sing a response, prepare our hearts for this, this Jesus that came once and is coming again this joy to the world. So I'm going to invite our song team to come on up and let's sing together <clears throat> a confession of what has been and yet uh, a commitment to what will be. Joy to the world. <clears throat>
Let's pray together. Father in heaven, right now we are just, uh, I guess I'm personally sobered, and I, I just want to confess to you my weakness. Lord, we, we bring before you our brokenness and our inattention, um, our thoughtlessness at times, our carelessness about things that are quote-unquote little that really amount to much. And so, Father, I pray that we, in our hearts, would be so fixed on the God who gave everything from little to big, that our hearts would be so enamored by and fixated on the God whose message, whose billboard is so clear, that our lives would reflect and respond to that billboard alone. Oh, Lord God, would you please... Um, Do a work that only you can do. I mean, we may have purposes in our heart, but only you can really fix them. Only you can really turn them into action. And so we give ourselves to you. And we ask that in our lives, you would be glorified. In the things that we eat, the things that we drink, whatever we do, may we do it all to your honor, to your glory. In Jesus' saving name, let the family say Amen and amen. God bless you, friends. Have a restful Sabbath. Um, I want to encourage you to pick up one of those volunteer forms there on the welcome table. And um, yeah, may God bless you on this Sabbath day. You know what? Yeah, thanks for the reminder. For those of you who want to stick around and huddle with us for prayer, just about the, the future steps in the coming year for our church and stuff, please, please join us. We'll do a little bit of tidying, but then we'll just make a circle here, right here in the front for some prayer. Lord
Take these hands and lift them up, for I have not the strength to praise you near enough. See, I have nothing, I have nothing without. Take my body. 